Hey everyone, it's uh, it's David Barnett again, and here we are. This is uh, another Holiday Chat 2020. I'm joined by Paul, and Paul is a longtime business broker as well. You you also work in the insurance field, uh, life insurance, annuities, that kind of thing as well, and training and development and leadership management and things. But Paul, you've just made a huge change in your life. Why don't you tell everyone what you've decided to do um, in reaction to the COVID crisis? Right. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give COVID a little bit of accelerator credit for it. Uh, it's actually uh, the, the joke that I told over the years is when I married my wife, uh, I said, honey, my, my goal is just to get you to heaven. She says, well, just take me to Florida first. <laughs> <laughs> over the years, she's been encouraging us to, uh, to leave the Michigan area. And I built all my businesses in Michigan over the last 40 years. And as you mentioned, David, I, I have interest in, in training, development, uh, quality improvement, engineering systems, and uh, leading all of those clients uh, and, and making a dramatic change has been a struggle for me over the last few years. But I think uh, uh, Rachel and I were planning uh, to make the move uh, probably this coming winter Mm -hmm. And with the COVID changing things, I found myself doing all my consulting by, by Zoom call and by email and by filling the blank contracts on the internet. And I, I've been very active on internet marketing for 10 years and uh, engaged in it in, in every way I, I can be. And I came to the reality that, wait a minute, everything I'm doing now, I don't get to see my clients anymore. I can't go to their offices because they're trying to protect against the government's mandates in Michigan. Uh, Michigan is one of the most restrictive states, and every week there was a new rule. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I couldn't really be anything more than a remote consultant at best. So uh, we listed our house, our condominium for sale in October. We packed up and uh, drove away at the end of October, and I've opened up uh, our new permanent lifestyle in Florida. Awesome. And so you're still doing work with your, your Michigan clients and running your Michigan businesses, but you want to get something going down in Florida now too. Yes, that's exactly right. I, I still have some ongoing contracts, uh, consulting contracts, advisory. I sit on a few board of directors and uh, I'm doing all that by Zoom and attending the meetings uh, and we're participating uh, either uh, over the phone or, or through mail on, on contract work. And uh, we have a number of online businesses uh, that we continue to run. So those are going, but uh, starting a new lifestyle and eventually we're gonna be able to see and meet with people and talk with people and get back to community. And I need to start developing my community down here in Florida uh, and, and make it uh, as, as uh, profitable and expansive as it can be. And I want to focus it on uh, business brokering, finding the small and medium-sized business owners that, that would like to uh, have assistance in the valuation of their business, planning their succession planning, uh, maybe strategies to find uh, the right buyers for their business and do all the things that an intermediary would do to accelerate their own change. 
And uh, I've done that uh, up in Michigan for a number of different companies. I've done it for my many businesses. And uh, that's what I, I want to do. And part of that is, of course, I have all of the credentials and licensing and, and uh, contracts with some of the premier insurance and annuity and financial planning companies. So uh, that's, that's my interest going forward. Okay. And so you wanted to talk about some of the ideas or of, of ways that you could be meeting or, or generating this new client base in Florida. That's correct. I, I uh, had been looking at, uh, I had a call, I have a business broker friend, another college friend that's over in the east side of the state, and he's been doing uh, many transactions in the landscape uh, industry and farming community industry. And he had called me because he has a manufacturing client and uh, he wanted to know if I would help him do valuation of that particular business. And so uh, I'm going to engage in that area. And I got to thinking about valuation as a way to prospect, as a way to help a business owner get a first look at what their business could be worth. Because most of them don't know, and they don't know that they're going to have to detail it at, at some time. It, it isn't a, a fly-by-night valuation that's going to sell their business. There has to be some meat eventually behind it, but it's a good way to start a conversation. And then I, I recalled uh, that you uh, had, I, I think, our certified valuation specialist up in, uh, in your area, and I know that you've been doing business brokering for years, so I thought this would be a a great holiday call to get your insights on uh, on that. When I saw your email come through holiday, I, I jumped on it. So I wanted to talk about business valuation and uh, how it can help the business owner uh, the who's selling and the business buyer who's buying mm -hmm. and uh, help in marketing too. Okay. So, so I'm not a certified business valuator. Um, I'm a certified machinery and equipment appraiser. And okay. I learned business valuation through doing the IBBA's CBI program. Um, and so this is something I started back in 2008. I did that certification training. And so valuation is part of that training. But then on top of that, um, when I was, you know, starting off, I was a Sunbelt business broker and Sunbelt in Canada was building this automated um, template-based valuation system through Excel. And it went through multiple iterations and, and uh, the people who developed that are still releasing new, new releases of that. So as that software was developing and growing, initially it didn't do the whole job, it did part of the job. And so there was a lot of training on the basics of every step that you take in order to do evaluation. And over the course of time, they kept automating more and more and more of those steps in that valuation tool. And so I've just been doing this for 12 years. And when I had my business brokerage open, um, I was producing what we called most probable selling price evaluations. And, you know, with the experience of seeing the results, it helps to fine tune some of the more artistic elements that become involved in that process. And so eventually I was down to the point where most of the businesses were selling for between five and 10% of what the MPSP had said they would. And so to me, that was a really good confirmation that, you know, th there are numerical methodologies and mathematical processes at play, but then there are certain subjective elements that have to be introduced as well. 
And so that's the tough part. That's the tough part because, um, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and some elements about a business are more attractive than others. So for example, I'll give you a great example. Um, seasonal businesses, you know, there, there are businesses around here that shut down, you know, or at mid or end of October and they don't reopen again until the snow starts to melt in April. And you would think that there's less of a demand for a business that doesn't provide a year round income, but that's not true. There are people who want to find a business that they can run for part of the year and then not have to worry about running a business in the winter when they're down in Florida, for example. And so they can shutter it and lock it all up and then go to Florida and be totally relaxed and then come back up here and get it going again in the spring. So, so there's actually a little bit of a, a premium demand for that kind of business in, in, in certain industries. Mm-hmm. So, the, so that's my background with valuations. Now, today, um, I do them for some other business brokers who don't want to do the valuation work. So I kind of do it as a subcontractor for some people. And then I get approached by business owners who see my YouTube videos and stuff, and they want to have a valuation because they either want to take their business to market or they're in exactly the position that you are talking about. They know that they want to sell one day. They want to make sure they're on the right track and they want some kind of guidance as to what their business may be worth today. And what do I see when I look at it as far as problems or opportunities that could be addressed in order to improve things? Um, A lot of the times there are these bits of low hanging fruit where it's a rather easy change to make, but it could have a very big impact on the, on the net result of the valuation. One of the, one of the things that I see most often are businesses that are, have way too much operating capital in them. Um, there are far more efficient ways to operate the business where they could be earning just as much money, or maybe they could be earning 99% of the profits they're earning today, but they could take hundreds of thousands of dollars out of the business without any consequence, except that you know, a little 1% reduction in earnings. And so what business owners often believe is that they should be maximizing their net income or maximizing their profit. And that actually is not the goal. The goal to maximize the value of your business is to have the highest possible return on equity, the highest possible profit from your money tied up in the business. And that's what the guys over at Walmart are trying to do. They're, they're trying to figure out, you know, how can we pay our suppliers slower and how can we offload different, you know, parts of the CapEx onto others? That's why Walmart leases buildings. They're one of the biggest companies in the world. They should own their buildings. Well, no, that doesn't make sense because then they'd have a bunch of money tied up in a slow growing asset, real estate, where they'd much rather have their money tied up in the inventory, which turns over very rapidly where the margin is, right? And so those guys will lease instead of owning the building. So, so those are the kinds of things that I look for when I do that. And then the big problem though, is finding people who are willing to lift their head from what they're working on right now to serve the customer who's expecting delivery tomorrow, to look at the horizon and actually put some thought into the, the long-term plan. And it's funny because just the other day, there was a conversation on LinkedIn that I was a party to uh, 
where someone was expressing frustration about how he does all this work to go and try to talk with business owners. And at the end of the day, they all ignore him. And then they run to him when some crisis happens and they want to sell their business next week. Right. You know, and then unfortunately for those people is they never get the value they could have if they had been properly prepared. That's correct. And, you know, I think that's the, the intermediary's job is get the, both the seller and the buyer to face reality Mm -hmm. and then try to complete that transaction in a, in a rational sense. Uh, because the closer it gets to completing the transaction, the more irrational both of them want to become because <laughs> they think they got a deal. And, and then they come up with all of their reasons to wreck the deal. And part of the intermediary uh, job, maybe the largest part of the job is recognizing what you just said is give them a whack in the head early enough so that they can stay calm and let you do your preparatory work because it's going to affect a lot of people, not only them and their families, but it's going to affect their employees. It's going to affect their suppliers. And they're not thinking about the implications of everybody else. It's only themselves. And when they do that at the moment of truth, all these little breakdowns begin to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I, I, I'm thinking the valuation <clears throat> is almost a screening tool. If somebody, let's call it a broker's opinion, not necessarily a detailed valuation, but if you have a, a financial statement and you can point out what you're talking about is uh, what frustrates me sometimes is listening to CPAs giving instructions to their owners to do things to save taxes. <clears throat> Their whole orientation is we're going to save taxes. All right. And that's such a short term annual uh, dance, if you may, when in fact there could have been some strategic investments made or not made that are going to get them in a position three years from now rather than have an obligation of a $50,000 copy machine that they bought. <laughs> well, they, you know, they could have rented month to month something and then being able to take that off the books. Yeah. 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 Outsource, outsource the service altogether. Well, and this is the thing that, that I see, like I, I wrote, um, I wrote an ebook that I give away for free online at 12 things to do before you consider selling your business. Well, one of the things is about capital assets. I've seen all kinds of businesses that'll have a hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment that's used three times a year. And I'll say, why don't you just rent one whenever you need it? Well, so-and-so went out of business and there was a big auction and we got a really good deal on it. You know, the, the, for the cost of renting that thing on those three days a year that they need it, they could sell it and take all that money out of the business and the business would be practically unaffected. So the value of the business wouldn't change even though you squirreled something out the back door and sold it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's the kind of thing that people often don't look at. But, you know, you work with people about planning out their retirement and about thinking about their future needs, et cetera. It reminds me of a meeting I had with, with two gentlemen who were in the financial planning and insurance business. I went to their office. This was about two and a half years ago. And, and they suddenly came across a problem that they had in their business that they didn't realize they had. 
they would sit down with business owners and talk about their retirement plan. And they would ask the business owners, what are you going to do with your business when you retire? And people would say, well, I'm going to sell it. And they would say, oh, okay. And what do you expect the proceeds from that will be? And then they would write down a number. That number became part of the foundation of their financial plan. And most often the business owners really had no idea what their business was worth or how to sell a business or if their business was even saleable. And so these financial planners started to realize, oh my God, we have this huge problem in that we have all these people who think that they have this certain financial plan in place, where in fact, one of the, one of the fundamental foundations on the bottom of this plan may not be true. And so they wanted to talk with me about doing some sessions to talk with business owners and to do some valuation work to give people a realistic idea of what it would be like for their exit and what they could realistically expect for their business, et cetera. Do you want to know how many of their clients wanted to step forward and participate in that process? None. None. That's right. Because they're all busy doing other stuff and they all, you know, think that something else is a bigger priority. And so the, the whole idea of helping people out with evaluation, I, I think it's a good idea. I think that the, the market out of the whole universe of business owners and operators, the number of people who will see the value and want to participate in what you're talking about is a very small segment. Mm -hmm. And I can't, and, and you should not let the fact that most people you ever approach are going to ignore you. You shouldn't let that dissuade you because, you know, people have to manage their own affairs. We're all responsible for what we do every day. And if, if they're not going to pay attention to that, it's not your problem, right? I mean, you are creating an opportunity for them to take care of that. If they ignore that, that's up to them. And so it, I think that it could be very um, disappointing and, and very, uh, you know, full of rejection if you go out there and start offering the business valuation as part of a planning process to do a financial review. Maybe it includes, you know, life insurance or annuity products that you also take care of looking at, you know, their 401ks or whatever, their IRAs or whatever plan they have set up. Um, I can tell you though, what I've seen people do that really isn't good at all is uh, I once spoke with a business broker. I think he was in Missouri or somewhere like that, somewhere, somewhere in the middle. And um, he was, their office offered free evaluations. And so they sent out letters to all kinds of business owners saying that they would do a free evaluation on a business and all kinds of business owners took them up on that offer and would submit tax returns. And they had one guy who was literally being inundated with all of these requests and they were just quickly looking at some of the numbers and then putting out a ballpark like, Oh, well between this, 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 and this, we think your business is worth, you know, with a standard multiplier, let's say, let's put it here. Well, I think that they were doing a lot of damage because I, I don't think they were giving the proper time and attention to those business owners. And it could very easily be that some fundamental aspect of those businesses could cause them to be worth far more or far less than what that spitball number was. And you misguide people's expectations, right? And, and I also think that whenever you offer something for free, you're going to get takers who are not necessarily committed to any kind of process. 
because they have no skin in the game. When, when I had my brokerage office open, uh, I used to charge an upfront fee for doing that most probable selling price evaluation. And that fee was really important for a lot of reasons. It was important to me because it created some amount of cash flow. It was important to the seller because it meant that they had to be put a little bit of skin in the game and be committed to the process. They really had to want to sell. But here's the other reason it was important. It was important to the buyers because whenever I would speak to buyers, one of the things that buyers would complain about is the fact that they would find so many businesses listed for sale that had unrealistic prices, whose sellers had unrealistic expectations, unrealistic timelines, et cetera. And I would be able to explain to them, well, that's not my sellers. My sellers are committed to this process because they've actually paid to be a part of a process that will lead the business to sale. And I would not take a listing if the seller would, would want to put an unrealistic price on it. So if I told someone that their business was worth about 300 grand and they said, great, I want to ask 750, I would say, then find someone else. I'm, I'm not going to do it. You know, if they, if I said it's worth 300 and they said, well, do you think we could ask, you know, 339? I said, yeah, we probably can. Right. You know, and everyone's expecting to negotiate, et cetera. And as long as it was reasonable, in my opinion, I would agree to move forward with them. And that got me a better quality of buyer because people would expect uh, more reasonably priced things from my office. Yes. Uh, well, I agree with that approach. And I think you've identified a couple of things is one, the let's call it the general prospecting of, hey, here's here's valuable information that you can get for free is basically a lead. And that lead needs to be harshly qualified at the very beginning. And if, in fact, they will cross over the line and say, yeah, I'm willing to give you financial statements, this, that, and the other thing, so you can do something rational with it, then maybe, maybe there's 100 leads and only three of them are actually going to take the next step, mm -hmm. right? The other 97 are, are really noise, and you can give them, if you may, general opinion stuff that they can get off of Google or off the internet. They can find out as much as you could give them, but you're not going to put any energy in it. Then at the the three, which my thought was a mini qualification, and then say, you know, if you need to do this right, you need to do, I'm going to refer to your book, the 12 things to get your business ready, all right? And, and if you're willing to do that, I'm willing to continue working with you. And the fee for that is, pick a number, 12,000, 24,000, whatever number it's going to be, and that will be part of our transaction cost fee eventually. I'll take it out of my transaction or something. Well, so, so that would be a process evaluation that I'm then thinking might work. What's your reaction to that? Well, the, the whole idea of, of offering someone something for free as an enticement to talk with you more is, is sound. Like it's well-established as a great way to do marketing and promotion. I mean, on my website, uh, how to sell my own business.com. Uh, that's where the, the ebook is the 12 things to do before you consider selling your business. And so I'm saying to people here, download this, it's free and it's informative. And if you do these things, it's going to be helpful for you. And so you can easily produce some kind of document or something that you can promote 
hey, if you're thinking about selling your business one day, here is a document that you can have, which goes over a whole bunch of these things. And, and then in that document is where you talk about how a professional valuation can really be useful to them. And then you can, you can say, you know, it, it's not scary. It's not super expensive. Um, it's done, you know, I, I like to give people an idea, you know, people don't know, is it a $10,000 thing or is it a $1,500 thing? Right. Right. Yeah, and gotta, so, gotta give them the focus. Yeah. So, so you can, you can put in there and say, you know, for most businesses, this is less than, you know, I don't know. You can, you can compare it to the cost of something people would know about, you know, it's less than a cost. I hesitate to say less than a cost than the cost of an old used car because people could still have a wide range of what that is, but you could say it's less than $1,500 for most clients or for something like that. And um, I'll be able to show you how, um, how you can, my words escape me here, but how you can sort of recoup that cost or, or right. get a return out. on that very, that very investment. You don't right. even have to sell your business. Just having that information, having the guidance from a proper valuation that takes it out of the personal opinion of the owner, yeah. turns it into maybe a market opinion or even an accountant's estimate. You know, if you give me three financial statements, I'll, I'll give you what an accountant's estimate would be on your assets and, and on your returns. Uh, and get it out of the dreamer category. The thing that I like, which I've done a, a lot over the years, is the improvement. I, I love identifying, oh, by the way, it seems to me you have three people in your administrative office when you could do it for two, two people in a computer. And if you made that change in the next year, your profitability would be much bigger and you'd get a higher return. So you could actually help them or you ought to get rid of that copier or that extra machine or get rid of something here in the next 12 months mm -hmm. and your picture will look a lot better. Just one or two of those insights from a third party is enough to pay a return. Well, and, and you know, pe people sometimes dismiss these kinds of conversations. They go, well, how, how wrong can somebody be? Let me tell you about one I did a month ago, okay? So I was approached by an intermediary in California who does not have a lot of experience selling businesses. And through a family connection, had an opportunity to sell a business for someone and decided they were gonna go for it, they were gonna sell the business. The problem they were struggling with is that the intermediary wanted to list the business for sale for one and a half million the seller was concerned that they were leaving too much money on the table. He wanted to list it for two. So they agreed that they would get somebody else to value the business. And they went online and they found some of my YouTube videos and they liked me and they wanted me to do it. My MPSP on the business came back at 380,000. So these guys were arguing between one and a half and 2 million. And basically my evaluation came in at like one fifth of the money, which, you know, how can you be so far off? Easy. The business had a lot of capital equipment or a lot of expensive trucks, pieces of machinery, et cetera. And when people look at that, they're like, well, it's gotta be worth more than the stuff. 
because we have the stuff, but we also have the customers, we have the clients and we have, you know, the regular customers and everything. But the fact of the matter is, is the stuff doesn't matter. The buyer's buying the cash flow, right? right? The buyer's buying the cash flow. And so I identified a whole list of things. I was like, number one, do you need all this stuff to do the level of business that you're doing? I also found out one of the things I did is I benchmarked the business. And so I said, did you know that on average, your competitors are making more net income out of the same level of sales than you are? So your gross margins probably aren't right. Is you, you know, there, there probably is room to increase, um, you know, your pricing. Now, the caveat to that is that these guys are in California. And so the problem with California, whenever you're operating anything that burns fuel, is that you've got all these different emission standards and things that add to the cost. And so that could be one of the reasons why he's not making as much money with the same sales because he's got more invested in, in equipment and things to meet those emission standards. It costs him more to do the business. And then normally a business owner would think, if I had to pay more for my machinery because I have to meet these emission standards, that makes my business worth more. But the fact of the matter is what has happened is government rules have caused you to spend more money but the market won't bear a higher pricing, which means your cash flow is lower, which means the business is worth less. So the government regulation has made your business worth less. Nobody likes to hear that. Nope. Right? And I, so- I would they respond to your uh, analysis. As, as they say, sounds like one of those projects you want to be paid for up front. <laughs> How, how did he respond? He, yeah. he said, what do I need to get the cash flow up to so that it will be worth 2 million? Good for him. Good for him. That's right. the right answer. And, I, and I, I gave him some ideas, but I mean, this fellow had been working for 20 years on this, right? But, but had never done anything like this before. And so like most business owners, you know, you're paying the bills, you're paying for the upkeep and repair on equipment, you're paying for maintenance, you're paying your employees, you're doing all that stuff, you're running a good business, you're taking home a paycheck. At the end of the week, you can sit down and then start to do your own CFO work, analyzing the return on equity in your own business, or you can crack open a cold one mm -hmm. and relax a little bit. And, and for people that work hard all the time, the, 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 the year is really appealing. Right. Well, I, I think you're, you're pointing out, uh, again, uh, back to what you said before, don't be discouraged that very few people respond to needing evaluation. They just can't face the work effort uh, and the CFO work that they know they need to do to do it right. If we can get them over that bridge, the value proposition for them to have somebody do that rigorous analysis. And, and I want to, I don't want to overly criticize the CPA accountant, but their focus on tax. I've always over my manufacturing consulting days have had to reorient the owners to their focus on operational profitability. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much money did we make today and what could have we not spent and what could have we 
done in new products or new added value propositions in order to make tomorrow even better. And working on that fundamentals is what you're talking about. What do we have to do to make this business better? And if we could get people, the ones we really want to work with are people that have a year or two yes. to make some of those hard choices to make their business attractive so the new buyer can have a real opportunity. And yeah. now they've got something to sell. Well, and, and you know, the thing to, and this is one of the conversations I have a lot with people is that, you know, when people think about numbers and they think about business numbers, they, you know, people relate that with CPAs. They're, they're the accountants or the people that make the numbers. Most CPAs spend all of their time preparing tax returns and creating financial statements. CPAs are historians. Their job is to make sure that the financial statements and tax returns accurately reflect the things that occurred in the business, the transactions that occurred. The entire accounting profession is built upon the idea of accurately reporting to ownership what is happening in a business, right? The world of business valuation is a finance practice and financial professionals are not backward looking, they're forward looking. It's all about required yields. It's all about required returns. It's all about the idea of figuring out where an organization should best deploy its capital in decision-making. So, you know, people see accountants, they're aware of accountants because there's an H&R block office in every city. Right. right. And all the other independent accounting offices that are advertising out there. So people know about accountants, but people don't know about finance professionals because there are no corner offices anywhere for finance professionals. Right. The big companies have finance people in them because they have to figure out how they're going to, you know, make investments to continue to grow and all those kinds of hard decisions. And, and so there are some CPAs who do work with business valuation. And they have experience with that. They're few. They're, they're not common. And people who work in the, in the field of business valuation or M&A work are often not accountants. Mm -hmm. every, every finance project starts with the work of a good CPA because we start with those financial statements that are produced that show what happened in the business. And now we have to move forward from there. And so um, one of the websites that I like to have fun with is Quora.com where anyone can ask a question and people can respond. And so there was one actually last month where a fellow said, I'm thinking I might want to sell my business, but I'm not sure. Are there any quick rules of thumb or ways that I can figure out what my business is worth? One of the answers was from a CPA whose credential also said that he'd been working as a score advisor for the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. Do you know what his rule of thumb was? I'm afraid. He said, a good, rule of thumb, sales. a good rule of thumb is that a business is worth 10 times net income. Oh, no. Right. And so, you know, to me, 10 times net operating income would be like an older piece of commercial property. Maybe it's a building. A business is way more risky. Right. right? And, and we don't multiply net income. We multiply discretionary cash flow, which has been normalized, right? And so, 
So yeah, there are, there are people out there who are giving advice who sound like they know what they're talking about, or they have the credentials that might seem to indicate to people that they know what they're talking about when in fact they don't. And so, and not to, not to poo poo on the accounting profession because it's really important and we need good accountants, but I really love the accountants that I meet all the time who want to refer people to me or want to refer people to good business brokers because they know it's not their area of expertise. Right. And, and I think that's a very uh, good point to make and establish early in a relationship with accountants, with the lawyers, with all of those professionals is they know where their sweet spot is. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, in fact, uh, one of the transactions I think I talked with you about a couple of years ago was referred to me by a CPA yeah. and originally referred it. And, and uh, I looked at it, told him some things to do, and he couldn't get the owners to move on doing it. A year went by and he called me and he says, now they're in deep trouble. Would you please take this account? And I took it and then fixed it. Now he had it as an account for 10 years, but when it came to doing the transaction on the business, he, he didn't want to do anything with it for the reasons you point out. He's a specialist in history and a specialist in taxes and a specialist in doing that. And that's their sweet spot that they can provide a valued service and get paid a, a valued amount for it. When they get into all these other areas, they, they got to open the books like anybody else. And if they're not current on manufacturing or current on quality systems or current on tooling or all of the other things that are happening in the industry, they have no idea how to value it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's something else here at play too. And, you know, when someone is a professional, like a CPA, you know, they're supposed to be acting at all times with their best interests of their client at heart, but Someone, someone reminded me one day, and I, I kind of went, ooh, I never thought of it before. But it's when a business is sold, whoever is the accountant for that business will almost certainly lose the account. Yeah. Because the buyer usually has their own accountant. And so it means that if a CPA helps somebody sell a business, that <clears throat> there may be fees involved in that work. But it often means that a regular client is now gone forever. The same can often be said to a certain degree with the attorneys, uh, although people tend to less use attorneys less often. So, you know, and a lot of people will continue to use that attorney for other things personally, right, as they move forward. But for an accountant, um, you know, when the business is sold, often that means the end of that work. And so it, it, it is quite, it is possible that there are some people who don't want to encourage that transaction because they don't want to lose the regular client. That's true. That's true. The, uh, on a buyer's uh, standpoint, let's talk about the valuation uh, from a buyer's perspective. Uh, the, uh, what, what I try to do is along the lines of what you were uh, indicating before you take the client, you really want to make sure that the listing is going to be rational. Because the last thing you want, you put the listing out there, the buyer calls up and says, you know, I'm willing to pay, show me the numbers, and the numbers are ridiculous, then it's just a waste of marketing energy at that point. And uh, so I think uh, educating a seller 
on the aspects of what a buyer is going to be looking for or requiring either the buyer if they're knowledgeable or the buyer if they're looking for a job or the buyer if they're being represented by their banks or CPA or a buyer that's going to be doing SBA financing. These are all aspects that need to be addressed both with the buyer and the seller because if we can't get everything established that's going to meet all those requirements, hmm. the transaction's not going to happen. Well, a lot of this has to do with the fact that the sellers don't sell their business all the time. So most sellers, they run a business, they think about their customers. They think about what their customers want and they try to meet those needs. Otherwise they wouldn't have a business. When they go to sell their business though, they don't empathize with the buyer of the business or think about their business like a product, right? And so I'll give you a really great example of, of one that I had last year. Uh, is an opto- it was an optometry clinic. And this seller believed that their optometry clinic was worth about a million dollars. And it's actually a big joke in our business buyer adventure group coaching program. Half the time people find a business they're interested in, the asking price is $1 million. Right? <laughs> nice round number. Anyway, so this optometrist thought that his practice was worth a million dollars. Now, there was a piece of real estate there that was worth about 300 grand. So I took that out and I normalized by putting in a, a rent figure, et cetera, to see what the actual performance was. And he was left with a discretionary cash flow under 200,000. And so I, so I said to him, I said, like, if I were an optometrist, what could I earn if I were employed by one of these big chain optometry outfits? He said, well, you know, like 130, 150 grand maybe a little bit more. I said, great. So if I could earn 150 grand as an employee and, and not have to worry about all the stuff a business owner has to worry about, why would I pay an extra 600 grand for another 30 or 40 grand a year? Why would I invest that kind of money for such a small return? If I had, if I had 600 grand, I could just go buy some apartment buildings and get a lot more money than that. Right. And, and, that perspective is often lost on them because what they're thinking about is they're thinking about all of the perks that come with business ownership as far as, you know, controlling your own time, you know, the flexibility, the freedom, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they're selling a cash flow, And, and that's the part that they're missing because they don't work in this field. And so, you know, I learned that you just can't take on those listings. If they're not willing to be realistic, you have to say no, because you don't want to develop the reputation as being the guy with the, the listings that don't make sense. When, when I was operating here, I had a, comp- a competing business brokerage. One of their clients came into me at the end of his listing agreement and he showed me the business valuation that they did on his business. There was an error in their math. Their, their methodology double counted operating capital. Mm. So there was, there was, they had a fundamental misunderstanding of how to price businesses. And what it led to was every business they listed was overpriced by the value of the amount of operating capital in the business. And they had a reputation for offering businesses that were overpriced. 
I met many buyers who would say, yeah, I went over there and they have all these businesses, but they're all overpriced. Right. Mm -hmm. And so people would not invest time and effort in going over to talk to that broker because the sellers had not been properly prepared for a reasonable offer. And that's the key thing as a buyer is you, you want to make an offer that makes sense. You, you know that there's something of value here. You're willing to pay for it. But if the seller hasn't been properly prepared and you're just going to insult the guy and get emotions and feelings all riled up, then what's the point? Right. Right. right? You're just going to waste your time. Whereas if you, be, if you get the reputation as the business broker whose businesses are reasonably priced and, and boy, if Paul gets something that, that you like, you better act because, you know, he's got all these buyers lined up. Everyone knows things are reasonably priced there. Then, then you can start to move inventory quickly. Right. right? And then that's the key to being successful as a business broker is the sellers have to have reasonable expectations so that the buyers become excited and eager to see your new listings and you get them done quick. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the faster it's done, the more quickly you'll end up earning your commission. And it doesn't matter if it takes you two years or six months to close a deal, your commission is going to be the same. You got to get them done quick. Well, I think that's a, that's a very, very important aspect because it's a win, win, win. The seller wins, the buyer wins and the broker or intermediary wins. The bank wins, the lawyers wins, the CP, yeah. everybody wins because it's efficient. It's accelerated it's rational and they know going in when I'm dealing with these, this person, I know everything's going to be clean from the very beginning. I know the transactions that I did over the last couple of years with particular lawyers or whatever, man, we never had any serious problems because they knew when I said something that was going to be absolutely what the document said. Mm -hmm. And vice versa. When I asked for a certain clause or whatever, I knew exactly that clause was going to come back. It, the, the way it, the way it had to serve both buyer and seller, and and so when you get that momentum going, I think it's very valuable. You know, I I, I want to throw this one inquiry out that I think you'll you'll uh, have some insights on what I'm going to call the seller, who's still in love with his or her business, and they want to sell the business, but they have this model of perfection that the buyer needs to look like them, act like them, treat customers like them, uh, fully understand how totally valuable this business is, that it's been uniquely developed over the last 20 years. And it's such a genius enterprise that these are the people that need to buy it. If you may instructing the, the intermediary of this very narrow audience they're willing to sell to, for the reasons they're really to sell. And I challenge that because I have to take a deep breath and then try to get them into the conversation of, can you let go of this business? Because the person or persons that are buying it may buy part of it, all of it may be buying it for a wholly different reason than you care to sell it for. Etc. Et so let's talk about those ideas because that's where a lot of emotion is and a lot of the fireworks can happen. Yeah. So when I presented my MPSP, I would always talk about two different types of buyers, a financial and a strategic buyer. And 
they, they could express certain desires like what you just outlined. You know, I want to sell it to this kind of person. And then when I was describing that kind of buyer, I'd say, this is the buyer you were just talking about. You know, this is what they will look like. And then I would, I would explain what we can expect from that buyer. So if it was something like a, a restaurant, for example, I would say, you know, most restaurant buyers who are financial buyers who are going to buy it and they're going to run it, they're coming from the hospitality industry which means they might be very experienced and knowledgeable, but they've been working for the last 20 years at not such a great wage. So we're not going to be able to expect this person to come in with a whole lot of cash. So here's the reality of this buyer is likely if this is going to be the buyer, this is going to be their situation. And maybe they have some family or something that can help them out a little bit, but you're going to end up financing more of this transaction. And then let's talk about this other kind of buyer, the strategic buyer or another flavor of financial buyer or someone who wants to buy part of the business. And I would give them an idea of what the transaction was likely going to look like. Who could they expect to have more money? Who could they expect to require more seller financing? Who could they expect to qualify for a loan at the bank or not? And so what I would try to do is try to create a painting of these different scenarios and what was going to be required of them in these different scenarios. And what I found would happen is that if they were hell bent on a certain kind of buyer and after a while, when they realized if that's the kind of buyer I need, I'm going to wait for, then it means I'm probably going to have to finance a bigger part of the deal. Mm -hmm. Eventually they would soften up to the idea of exploring other types of buyers. And the, believe it or not, the one thing that, I always ran into the most resistance over was were business owners who owned the, the building that their business was located in. Um, a lot of them flat out refused any kind of idea of selling the business and becoming the landlord. They wanted to sell it all and walk away. And I would explain to them like, well, now you're looking for someone that not only has a down payment on the business, but has a down payment on the building and who the banker believes can run the business successfully because now the mortgage is tied to that same set of cash flows. Right. So now the bank's going to have an even higher level of scrutiny over who this buyer is. So now we need someone with industry experience who has enough down payment for the business and has enough down payment for the building. And what, what it does, I would use the example of a, of a pyramid. I would say, you know, how many people are out there trying to buy a business who have, 50 grand in the bank. Well, there's this many. And then, you know, I'd hold my hands out wide and I would say, now how many buyers out there have 500 grand in the bank? And it's a, it's a much smaller point at the top of the pyramid. And so by making the business accessible to a larger pool of buyers, we're going to shorten the time. And so eventually I would be able to get most of them to agree to the idea of selling the business and becoming the landlord. And I would, I would explain like, you know, once the business is sold, the business is the hard part. Once the business is sold, now you've got someone paying rent. Maybe you get them to sign a 10-year lease or something. Now you can enjoy the passive income of collecting the rent. And after two years have gone by, they'll have the financial statements they need to then go and convince the bank to give them a mortgage. So maybe they, they buy the building in two years time. Or you can approach one of these real estate investment trusts who just want to collect rent. You know, they'll buy the building with the tenant already in place. 
And so you sell the business to one party and then a little while later you sell the building to another party. It's, it's not, um, it's not going to be a really tough thing, but it's not going to be what you think it should be. And one guy I had for, you know, stubbornly refused the idea of selling the business without the building. And that particular guy, I had his business listed for three years. It took three years to finally find the right guy. Two other, two other people made offers, but were never able to get the bank financing. One guy made an offer and did get bank financing, but not to the right degree. He wasn't, and the seller wasn't willing to finance as much as he needed. So that deal fell apart. What we had to wait for, this was a restaurant. So risky industry. The guy owned the building in an expensive place on a big, busy commercial street. And so what we had to wait for was a former franchisee whose business unfortunately burned down because a neighboring business caught fire. And this guy had 20 years experience operating in a food service franchise and a big fat insurance company check. Perfect. And he was able to qualify for the bank financing because he was the right kind of operator. The bank was satisfied he would do okay. He had the right amount of down payment. But that guy is like a one in a million guy. It took three, it took three years to wait for somebody or for the misfortune of his neighbor to burn down and destroy his business. You know, I think you, you just triggered a thought on how dramatic a, a difference we need to communicate to both buyers and to the sellers that there are those that think in the historical, the CPAs, uh, et cetera, or what used to happen with that business. It's my business. I've been running it for 25 years, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And those that think in the future, which in this case are the finance arms, the SBA, the bankers, uh, the potential buyers who are buying it for their family and their future. And as an intermediary, all we're really trying to do is continue to picture the future for the buyers so that it's an attractive enough future and it's an enabled future that they can get financial support for and, and customer support to carry that future. And don't let whatever happened with that business in the past cloud the future. And getting a line between those. Yeah. Keeping either buyer or seller from, uh, from concentrating on the past, keeping them looking towards the future. Well, you know, the, the, the fellow in California, uh, the one thing he said to me at the end of my presentation, when I came up with that $380,000 figure is he said, I've worked too hard for the last 20 years to sell it for that. And I think that statement summarizes what a lot of sellers are, are going through is that when they think about the value of their business, they think about all the work they did. You know, a lot of these people started the business. So maybe in the first few years, they worked 80 hours a week and took very little home for pay, right? And always trying to cover the gaps when there wasn't enough revenue coming in through their own efforts and labor, right? 
And, and they, they looked at that as an investment of sweat equity, because that's what the experts call it, you know, oh, your sweat equity in the business. And they think that that sweat equity is worth something. They think that that literally it's like, you know, uh, in, you know, buying shares or investing in the act, like there's somehow in the balance sheet, there's a place for sweat and that this sweat will grow at compound rate over the course of time and someone's going to pay them for it. In reality, all the buyer is willing to pay for is the cash flow that the buyer is going to enjoy. And the reason they're going to buy the business is because they think that they can do something with it, maybe even more. Right. And, and so, so that price is based on performance at the time of sale. Another instance where I run into this around these parts is that we've got some businesses where, you know, great, great granddaddy started them. You know, it's like a hundred year tradition of, of whatever in son's business. And people feel that that history, that tradition is worth something. And, you know, and I have to, I have to say to them like, well, does it let you charge 10% more? <laughs> because okay. then it would be worth something, you know? <laughs> well, that's right. How big is your brand? Yeah. Your, your brand's Tiffany. I guess it's okay. You well, can- you can value it. You know, right. brand and history lets Coca-Cola sell sugary, fizzy water for more than, than other people. So yeah, in that case, their history and their brand is worth something. But, you know, for most of these businesses, that's not the case. No. And you know, the other thought that you, as a valuation comparison, getting people to understand that the cash flow of this business and therefore its value is one statement. And then if you wanted to have this business and start all over, what would you have to do to create that cash flow? Mm. Because that still is an alternate. Fine, if you don't want to buy this business at that cash flow, I guess you could start from scratch and generate the cash flow. That also is instructive to the seller. It is why would, uh, let's pick a name, uh, why would you want to start a laundry services company? <laughs> you think your business is worth 250000 Somebody can get a contract with people that process laundry, go out and buy themselves one of those brand new white trucks, <laughs> and they're in the business, and they can yeah. generate as much cash flow as you're generating. <laughs> well, well the, the only difference there is getting the customers, right? Correct. And so, but at a certain point, the, the question I ask some people is I'll say, well, if I wanted to replicate this business, what would it cost me to set it up? And then how much money would I have to lose until I got to the point where I had enough customers? Right. right? And if it's, if it's significantly lower than the asking price, it's just another reason not to make the investment. I'm not saying it's a reason to start a business. I, I, I firmly believe that, you know, starting a business is full of so many unknowns. It's, it's far, far riskier than buying one, but you know, it, it's just another, another method of, of looking at something to reinfor- reinforce the idea that it's overpriced, for example. Right. That's good. All right. Well, uh, in my notes, I, I, I would just throw out uh, what are the uh, uses that I've thought about for having a valuation. And one we mentioned is a prospect. I guess it's good from a con- 
standpoint, getting getting a potential buyers and sellers uh, to discuss facts rather than dreams and fishing. Yeah. Second is as a business advisory tool. When I do evaluation, it it often gives me an opportunity to turn on my consulting advice mm-hmm. and and find ways people don't look at a third party. It's always healthy to have a third party look at your business and come up with different ideas for you. And I think evaluation helps do that. Uh, Um, You know, what, here's what I think you should do, Paul, is I, I think you should, you should think about all these different things that we've been talking about and about your other experience with consulting and financial planning and whatnot and you should uh, create an outline for like almost like a seminar or presentation but you should just record it into audio files and then do some marketing and, and just out to business owners and say, if you would like, you know, a copy of these, you know, eight audio tracks all about the things you need to do as a business owner, you know, who plans on selling one day and like, et cetera, and then just offer that, you know, then people can listen to it while they're driving around. They can listen to it while they, you know, or out for their walk, they can, you know, absorb this information, but it can, it can start to establish you as the expert in that area for, for people to go to who want this kind of help. And throughout that whole conversation, you, you can keep drawing the, the link between not being able to make informed decisions if you don't know what it's worth. Right. Right. And that, and so the whole idea is that the audio track they sell, it sells the business valuation. And then once somebody steps forward to want to buy a business valuation, well, then, then they're a lead for you potentially one day to sell their business. Correct. Correct. Yep. Yep. That's good. Good ideas. Anyway, we're, we're up at the end of our time. So I have to let you go because I got something else lined up here, but it was great to talk with you again. And, um, uh, boy, I'm going to be jealous. It's starting to get cold here and you're, the weather's probably still fine down there, isn't it? Looking beautiful today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a great, great day and Merry Christmas. Thank you, David. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye.